You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. In today's episode, we are continuing with an interview I had started several weeks ago with Terry Favreau. She had just published another book in her trilogy called The Sister Sputnik. This is my interview with Terry Favreau. Science fiction, the genderization of science fiction, especially, you know, years ago. I mean, I'm considerably older than you, so I mean, I'm talking about 60s and 70s. But yeah, I mean, it was hard to find very many science fiction writers who were women at that, and you know, Ursula K. Le Guin and, you know, Judy Merrill in Canada. And also just the, the idea that it really was kind of a guy's thing. I had a very strange experience, which I actually have written about when I was in university with a, I had a boyfriend who, whose favorite book was A Boy and His Dog by Harlan Ellison. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I don't know it. No, yeah, I don't know it was it. a, it became quite a cult book and it became a movie uh, that in the seventies, it was, a, it was Don Johnson of Miami Vice fame. It was his first, first <laughs> role when he was a teenager and, um, and it became a cult movie and it is incredibly misogynistic. Huh. It has the most misogynistic ending of any book of any, any genre I've ever read. And when I finished the book, I was so angry, I threw it at him. Oh, it's wow. probably the only time I've thrown a book at someone, but it is, it's, it's really <laughs> awful. So it's a funny kind of thing around sci-fi. It, it, I, things have really changed. Now, I I don't think there's that sort of sense that only men write it and only men read it anymore. Um, No, I don't think that's that's not the case any longer. But I think it's it's been recent that that change has happened, though. I I think that the transition happened much later because I wasn't talking to other young women about those books. I was talking about other books that I had been reading. Anne of Green Gables, for example. Yeah. You know what I find interesting is that both Doris Lessing and Margaret Atwood at different points in their careers turned to science fiction, which as particularly in Lessing's case, I think was just in a, like, it was such a shock. She was writing such standard kind of mimetic (laughs) fiction, right? I mean, it was, it wasn't even historical fiction the way that, you know, Atwood had was, you know, had written Alias Grace and she was writing about her own time and it was all very autobiographical and then suddenly she's writing about this completely fantastical world yes and you sort of wonder what causes that sort of sudden shift and why do your interests change that way um Mm. i can't think of a lot of men who've done that it seems like male writers i could be wrong i haven't thought about it a lot but male writers who are science fiction writers tend to be science fiction writers they don't suddenly shift in the middle of their career It's at this point in the interview that we then talk about what it means to write a trilogy and whether or not her books could be read independently or consecutively. This is what she had to say. I think and I hope that that you can read Sputnik's, that Sister Sputnik without having read Sputnik's children. 
when I was going through the edits with Jen Hale was the editor that ECW had used for both books. She was very sticky about making me make that second book work. If you had read the first one, like I, my own feeling was, I just, I don't want to worry too much about making them mesh. She would go back to the first book and say, this is what you said in the first book. Oh, that's excellent. She though. says, because there will be people who are going to read this book because they read the first book. So you have to be faithful mm. to that world you've created. You can't just step outside of it. So the writing of a sequel is, is, is very challenging for something like this. I would like to write one more book in before I give up on this group of characters that really focuses on the character of Prima, the little biomechanoid, who is now stuck back in the 1950s with Euphemia as her mother or mother figure. And I've sort of started writing it. And I have, I think I have to write that, but I think I'm going to call it I Prima because, (laughs) (laughs) because it's just uh, the, the idea the idea of sort of writing about a child who would be perceived as possibly a disabled child in that mm-hmm. era when it was there was no mercy for the way that you'd be treated in school, that kind of thing. And then, but she's actually kind of a more advanced form, life form, if you will. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and so I'd like to pursue that. The 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 sequel thing was at the. <laughs> And the other thing I that was very, really difficult with this book was that I had written the book in com- completed the book before the pandemic started. Oh, like just no as the way. pandemic I didn't realize was, that. Yeah, the the pandemic start the first lockdown was about 2 weeks after I'd sent it to my agent. And I contacted her and said, "Don't send the book out. I can't have written a book that's taking place in 2025." Mm. that doesn't in some way acknowledge what we are about to go into. Yes. So I worked through the edits. So I actually did do, I did it fairly quickly because I was lucky with Cozy World. I thought, well, Cozy World clearly is a world that's been through a lot of pandemics. Um, I, I, I got the book back and I took about six weeks and I actually rewrote sections of it so that at least it seemed you know I didn't know what was coming obviously Mm -hmm. but that it seemed reasonable that we had been through a big pandemic by the point that the book was starting but as I worked through it with my editor you know between basically 20 March of 2020 or April of 2020 and last October as we went through successive waves and different things went on mm-hmm. and I started to see how the world was changing and what was happening. For example, the ghost kitchen phenomenon came out of that and how kids are being affected. Yeah. Oh, oh ghost yeah. kitchens are being corporatized. The craft craft has had a ghost kitchen set up at craft central now for a year. I didn't They're know trying, that. Yeah. The, the large food manufacturers, this whole thing about them all being run by, by big food, big corporate food companies. I got that from the Globe and Mail business section. That's not made up. <laughs> um, so I kept I kept seeing what was going on in the world during that time I was working on the edits with Jen. Mm-hmm. And so the book, I did actually do a lot of rewriting in real time because... Um, 
because the pandemic was just offering me more and more of material that seemed like perfect for a science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I talk about it at the end of the book um, in the acknowledgments. I actually talk about that. Something else for the listeners read to the end of the book. Don't forget the acknowledgments. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for what it's worth, this is, this is, I would call this book a child of the pandemic. It, even though it was written before the pandemic in, in, right. in edits, it definitely started to take on more and more. It was reshaped in relation to what was happening. It was reshaped. It was reshaped according to what I, what I was experiencing, reading, seeing, hearing. I mean, I don't have little kids anymore, but you, you know, on my social media feeds, the distress that I was seeing with, well, particularly moms, but this families in general, uh, about what was happening with their kids. That's a little bit the junksters that you see in the book are partly that, mm. that sense that I don't want to call them a lost generation. I'm ho more hopeful than that. But, but I think it would be naive to think that our young people are not going to be coming out of this profoundly, with a, affected. profoundly affected by this and that there will be some young people like the junksters who are going to fall through the cracks who mm. are at risk before the, the pandemic and who are really going to suffer um, mm. coming out of it. Um, yeah, I believe so. That happened with the Spanish flu too, by the way. I did go back and look at that a little bit. It's at this point in the interview that I turn to Terry Favreau and suggest that, yes, history would have been very helpful in understanding the staggering losses that we had already suffered in the past in that instance in relation to the Spanish flu. In her response, Terry makes reference to the court case of Sacco and Vanzetti. She means Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, who were Italian immigrant anarchists. They'd been accused of murdering a guard and a paymaster at an armed robbery in a shoe store in Braintree, Massachusetts. This happened on April 15, 1920, and it was a period that was rife with anti-immigrant and specifically anti-Italian sentiment. So we turned to a discussion about the Spanish flu, how it affected Terry's family, and then how that makes its way into her novel. This is now Terry Favreau talking about the Spanish flu. I mean, the Spanish flu was a cloud over my family. Mm. Um, you see a, a slight bit of that in the book. There's a scene that mm. happens at Ellis Island. You're actually looking at a little piece of family history there. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. It was funny because nobody ever talked about the Spanish flu or ever heard about it, but it was a real topic of conversation and a real piece of family history uh, when I was growing up. Mm. My, I had a, basically it was my grandmother's sister-in-law died of the Spanish flu in New, wow. in New York during, right after the end of World War One, And my, my grandmother, who had already lived in New York for 10 years at that point, she was a teenager had to go back to Italy with her, her now widowed older brother who, so he could get married again. And my grandmother ended up going home and marrying my grandfather. People in the village made fun of her because of course she could speak English with a heavy New York accent. They used to call her L'Americana, 
because she'd been in the States during that period. My grand, my mother was born and, and then they came back in through the States through Ellis Island, but they weren't allowed to stay in the States because at that point, the immigration gates had come down for Italians oh, God, because yeah, of, of the, the Sacco and Vanzetti thing that was happening around that time. So we ended up being Canadians. Um, <sighs> all my, on my mother's side, everybody is, they're all Americans, but my grandmother had this experience where she was, on her way to being an American, but then fate intervened. And it was the Spanish flu that changed that dynamic in my family. Like it actually really did change the whole course of his, my family history. But it also made my mother was like, when we were kids, the slightest little thing that we got sick with, she was just absolutely petrified uh-huh. because she'd absorbed this from my grandmother who'd seen, who'd been through this. Right. And there was a sort of a trauma that was passed on generationally. Not sort of. That is a trauma that's passed along. That is what I'm afraid of for the children who've yeah, been exposed that, to it now. The, the fear of the fear of uh, disease, the fear of interaction. What happened apparently with the generation who were in school was that you know I don't know how much they closed schools. I think there was some of that in different places. I think it was depended on where you lived, but. The bigger thing was the Spanish flu had killed in by and large a different generation than say COVID. It it struck people in the prime of life. It struck a lot of people who were in their twenties and thirties. Oh. So what happened were there were a lot of orphan children. So there were their par- a lot of the people who died were like young. They had, you know, people had families young. I did not know that. Yeah. So what happened was like older people older siblings raised literally and of course they didn't have a social safety net in those days right there was you just survived or you didn't survive so families were broken up and the older siblings raised younger siblings and of course if your family was poor enough you just had to leave school so a lot of kids just didn't their education was impeded mm-hmm. and from what i read too and i and i can't even i don't can't even give you a source for this but I did read that among kids who actually did complete school, that the outcomes, like their educational outcomes, were were poor in general on average than the genera- previous generation and the generation that followed, or the cohort that followed. So they definitely had mm-hmm. a, a real impact. I think one of the reasons that we don't think about the Spanish flu so much is that, you know, it's sort of one of these forgotten tragedies even though it killed more people than they in world war one exactly that was the stat that i came across yeah oh it was it was unbelievable um Mm. and people died very quickly i mean it almost Mm. reminds you of reading about about the plague um people literally sometimes just drop dead it was really an unbelievably virulent thing i think that the the trauma of world war one was so great and as you as you know, I mean, it, cha- it should, you know, change the dynamic, the, the social and cultural dynamic of mm. the Western world. Right. You know, the Spanish flu was almost a, a kind of a grace note to the horror of World War One. And I think the war obliterated that that memory of what came after. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think you're quite right, because, of course, even in my classes, my history classes, there's no reference to the Spanish flu. It's the first world war, second world war. And I think too, and it, you know, and it, and I guess it has to do with what people wrote about. I mean, the first world war 
triggered so much, such a huge change in, in literature, right? And and people wanted to write about them. I mean, the, the war is a great story, right? It always gives you all these narratives. What narrative do you get from the Spanish flu? I mean, that you'd want to mm-hmm. sell to the public. I, I, you know, I think that's part of it is, is who tells the stories. It's war stories are more interesting than stories of sickness, I guess. I wanted to ask Terry how she became a writer. What was her inspiration? This is how Terry responded. Everybody was a storyteller in my family. It was all oral storytelling. I mean, that's where a lot of this comes from. And we and the other thing was, you know, la, la bella figura, you know? Yes. So that's, yeah, that, that's yeah, yeah. where a lot of, I think, the humor comes from, is that you tell these stories that if you didn't tell them almost as if they were a joke, you'd be crying, you know? So everything had to be like the, the, the thing is you didn't want to look weak, right? If you told a story about family history or something that went on, you'd have to spin it so that you looked either heroic or it would have to be somehow made to be funny, right? So the idea is you could tell us, the, if you tell a really good story in my family, you'd have to make somebody pee their pants in the end of it, <laughs> right? You'd have to somehow... Because if you can look like you're strong, right? Because if you can laugh about it, or if you can lie about it, you can make yourself the hero, right? In some way. Mm. Or you put one over on some somebody. Mm. It was interesting in the, the, the robot book, which I wrote partly because I have a family history with robots. What's the family history with robots? My father, um, who, was a, who was an electrician, he worked at a car plant look they they made car parts he wasn't really car plant he was working in the plant he he became kind of part of the engineering department there even though he wasn't an engineer because he was a really good problem solver he's kind of an amateur inventor and so in the 60s the very first industrial robots this would have been about 66 67 ended up thompson products got one of these things it's called unimate and my father, they they didn't know what to do. This is like what like a car, like a plant a factory in the '60s would like this death trap it was like something out of Blake, you know. It was industrial hell. So my father was kind of the guy that you call day or night if something went wrong on these with this big huge acre of machinery that's all going full tilt. So uh, my father, he would come home for for lunch every day. So he would come home and he he would often have like blood on his clothing because, and then he would tell these stories and I would be there because I had to go home for lunch too, even though I was in school. So he would tell these stories about, you know, people getting hurt and getting their, you know, he would obviously be upset. This would happen like once a week. And my mother would be like, Attilio, don't, don't talk about it. And he'd be like, oh, but you know, this happened. So then one day he comes home and I'm still like in elementary school. And he says, you he said, they gave me a robot. And, and of course I'm seeing like, Come on. yeah, so there I'm seeing the robot from lost in space or something, but what it is, is a robot arm, right? It's like this big thing. I mean, it was very, like a totally miraculous thing to them, but my, my father ended up, they had, somebody has to look after the robot, right. To make it work and fix it. And he was the guy, right. He was a robot keeper. He was the keeper of the robot. And, um, 
and the robot did do some pretty crazy things. <laughs> and at one point, he had to completely surround the robot with with baseball backstop nets because it would pick up hot parts from the machines and start throwing them, and sometimes almost killing some of the the men on the shop floor. So he had to find a way to stop. Like the it would do it. It would do it unprompted. Yeah, because. This is true of robots today. The robots are all kind of closed off from human beings. Like they have now, like, you know, car plants have, there are lots of robots, right? But they're all kind of, there's a lot of safety measures so that you can't have like a robot just out in the open, right? So there'll be like some type of a wall or something like that. Because a lot of robots, robots are mechanical objects right so when you're in a in a environment where you have a lot of heat and dust and grease anything like that eventually it they will malfunction and so that's why today they know that so the robots are isolated let's or they will work side by side with humans in some way that's becoming more common but, but there's a lot of protections in the place and that in those days it was the first time they'd ever had one they just put the robot there. So occasionally the robot would overheat or this has been a problem with the cooking robots too, because in kitchens, <laughs> in kitchens, they have a really hard time in kitchens, right? Cause they're hot and there's grease and there's, and there's liquid and uh, they're touchy things. They're quite sensitive. Most of them. So this was true. This is true. Now it was true in the sixties. So, so my dad had to find ways to stop when the robot sort of went berserk. I make reference to this actually in the book with the cooking robots, with the junksters have to go in there to hit the kill switch. That's a reference to what happened with your father. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, so Generation Robot, the idea for that book was I'd always been fascinated by the fact that my father just ended up in this unlikely situation. And of course, what happened though was my father, because he was a very, very creative guy, and um, and he had, had this long history of of making stuff, like inventing things, of building things up from like just to solve problems, which is where what a lot of roboticists I met were exactly the same kind of person. So he became fascinated by the robot. So he started to write the odd fake purchase order at work and got some parts. And started building working robots at home. Oh wow! Oh my goodness! So we had like a self mowing lawnmower, for example. Come on! Um, which was of endless interest to the kids in the neighborhood. I can tell you, with a robot, this robot lawnmower, and you know, this would have been maybe 1970. Um, he experimented with a and I actually refer to this in the first Sputnik book. He did experiment with an automated system of bottling wine. Because we we had a vineyard. My grandfather had a vineyard. He actually was kind of in the business of he sell it sell it to the grape juice industry and stuff. But he'd made his own wine, and um, my father decided that he there would be more efficient ways to do this than the old fashioned way. So he set up this. <laughs> that did not go well. He had a whole plan around the time he retired, which would have been the mid seventy. No, he retired in nineteen eighty actually. He had this whole plan worked out where for he was going to automate the kitchen in the, our house so that my mother had all these, you know, the tomato sauce and all the preserves and everything in the basement. So he was going to rip the whole kitchen out and build like a roboticized thing with a 
where you press the button. It's like the Jetsons. You press a button that says <laughs> tomato sauce and it would just come up from the basement on this kind of automated, it's like an elevator. And an elevator is actually an early form of robot, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, so I became kind of interested in that. So what I did for Generation Robot is I went back and researched the history of where that first robot came from and how it ended up in St. Catharines in the 60s and found out that the guy who came up with that robot was the year I was born, 56. <laughs> and um, this guy was at a, co- these two guys were at a cocktail party in New York. And one of them was actually the guy who invented the, the electric eye, you know, where you, the, when your doors open automatically, yes. he was the guy who had the first, the first inventor of those. He got into a conversation with this guy named Joseph Ernsberger, who was a basically like what we would now call a venture capitalist, but he was also a big fan of Isaac Asimov. Oh, and the two of them got drunk. And they had like that, oh, I love you, guy. I love your idea. I love robots. I'm going to find money. <laughs> and he did. And he actually started this company. And he, um, and then nobody wanted the robot because they thought it was like too weird. So then he got the robot on Johnny Carson. No, come and if you, on. If you go on YouTube and you put Unimate, U-N-I-M-A-T-E, Johnny Carson, he got on Johnny Carson. He conducted the Tonight Show Orchestra. He poured a beer for Johnny, uh, and uh, and 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 they played a they they played golf. Unimate went out and played golf with Johnny, and after that, people started to accept the robot because it was on the Tonight Show with Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> so this was maybe sixty two, sixty three. You can actually see if you Google it on, on 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 through YouTube. You can actually see some like early industrial ads for it and stuff doing stuff. There's one where it's pouring in England where it's pouring tea and this kind of thing. But that's the robot that my dad worked with. So I wrote this book where basically I wrote about a hundred. It's 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 called Generation Robot: A Century of Science Fiction, Fact, and Speculation. So I start in 1950, which is the year that iRobot was published. And 56 was the year that Unimate start came to life. And I basically trace the history of AI and robotics from 1950 to forward in time to 2050, like based on what's going on with robotics now. So some of it... and. I talk about robots in movies and things like Hal and oh, yes. 2001 Hal, of course, yes. and, and, and how those robots influence people who are actually building ro- real robots and stuff like that. So I use my, fa- my fa- father's story. I just trace back from, you know, that 10 year gap roughly between 1956 and then my father actually working with this robot. Right. So I actually never got a Canadian publisher for Generation no Robots. So when I like I've been a, an American publisher and I read at MIT Press Bookstore in Boston and a guy showed up, this guy with one of these heavy kind of, you know, the, the real classic South Boston accents, like in, you know, Goodwill Hunting kind of thing. And he'd read the book and he'd worked with the same robot oh, in the on. 70s. And he came, he brought his book to be signed and he said, I had to meet you, said, because I worked with Unimate. I said, I want to, he said, what happened? Like, where, like, where is Unimate now? And I said, well, Unimate has, 
is in the Robot Hall of Fame, which I've seen at, at, at Carnegie Mellon you know, in, in Pittsburgh, which is Robot Central. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, you know, the, the robot, you know, it, it evolved into iterations of robots that we have now that are much more sophisticated. Although that is a pretty, for the time, when I came to, my brother's an industrial engineer, which helped me kind of understand a lot of the... That's not a surprise, I, su- I suppose, hey, the industrial engineer, and then you're writing about robotics in your novels. Your father has had his legacy lived through the two of you. Oh, well, the, like my father was a very creative guy. To to be able to dream up, to, to get a bunch yes. of pe- pieces of, of equipment and then dream up a, yeah. something that... You know, and the guys who created Unimate were very creative guys. You know, a lot of this work is a lot of technological work is born of the imagination. It is. Mm. And in fact, when I interviewed a lot of these roboticists, I mean, really what was inspiring them was going to see 2001 or going to see Star Trek or, or not Star Trek, Star, the original Star Wars. And it was the machines and the beings, these artificial beings from those sh- shows or, or Asimov. I mean, Asimov has had a huge impact on robotics. I mean, the, we're the, back, we're back to the importance of storytellers. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And, you know, telling the story of Unimate to you, right. You know, the fact that that they had to tell, they had to tell the, the robot story on Johnny to, get, <laughs> so, to gain legitimacy. To, so, so the GM would, the, to, would put robots in car plants. And that was my interview with Terry Favreau. Remember that you can subscribe to these episodes on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.